0: Book six, chapter thirty nine of Robert Elsmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book six, chapter thirty nine. It was the afternoon of Good Friday. Catherine had been to church at saint Paul's, and Robert, though not without some inward struggle, had accompanied her. Their midday meal was over, and Robert had been devoting himself to Mary. Who had been tottering round the room in his wake, clutching one finger tight with her chubby hand. In particular he had been coaxing her into friendship with a wooden Japanese dragon which wound itself in awful yet most seductive coils round the cabinet at the end of the room. It was Mary's weekly task to embrace this horror, and the performance went by the name of Kissing the Jabberwock. It had been triumphantly achieved, and as the reward of bravery Mary was being carried round the room on her father's shoulder holding on mercilessly to his curls, her shining blue eyes darting scorn at the defeated monster. At last Robert deposited her on the rug beside a fascinating farmyard which lay there spread out for her, and stood looking, not at the child, but at his wife. Catherine, I feel so much as Mary did three minutes ago. She looked up, startled. The tone was light, but the sadness, the emotion of the eyes, contradicted it. I want courage, he went on. Courage to tell you something that may hurt you, and yet I ought to tell you—' Her face took the shrinking expression which was so painful to him, but she waited quietly for what he had to say. "'You know, I think,' he said, looking away from her to the grey museum outside, "'that my work in R hasn't been religious as yet at all. Of course I have said things here and there, but I haven't delivered myself in any way. Now there has come an opening.' and he described to her, while she shivered a little and drew herself together, the provocations which were leading him into a tussle with the North R. Club. "'They have given me a very civil invitation. They are the sort of men, after all, whom it pays to get hold of, if one can. Among their fellows they are the men who think. One longs to help them to think to a little more purpose.' "'What have you to give them, Robert?' asked Catherine, after a pause, her eyes bent on the child's stocking she was knitting her heart was full enough already, poor soul. Oh, the bitterness of this passion week! He had been at her side often in church, but through all his tender silence and consideration she had divined the constant struggle in him between love and intellectual honesty, and it had filled her with a dumb irritation and misery indescribable. Do what she would, wrestle with herself as she would. There was constantly emerging in her now a note of anger, not with Robert but, as it were, with those malign forces of which he was the prey. "'What have I to give them?' he repeated sadly. "'Very little, Catherine, as it seems to me to-night. But come and see.' His tone had a melancholy which went to her heart. In reality he was in that state of depression which often precedes a great effort. But she was startled by his suggestion. "'Come with you, Robert, to the meeting of a secularist club.' "'Why not? I shall be there to protest against outrage to what both you and I hold dear. And the men are decent fellows. There will be no disturbance.' "'What are you going to do?' she asked in a low voice. "'I have been trying to think it out,' he said with difficulty. "'I want simply, if I can, to transfer to their minds that image of Jesus of Nazareth which thought and love and reading have left upon my own.' I want to make them realize for themselves the historical character, so far as it can be realized, to make them see for themselves the real figure, as it went in and out amongst men, so far as our eyes can now discern it. The words came quicker towards the end, while the voice sank, took the vibrating characteristic note the wife knew so well. "'How can that help them?' she said abruptly. "'Your historical Christ, Robert, will never win souls. If he was God—' every word you speak will insult him. If he was man, he was not a good man. Come and see, was all he said, holding out his hand to her. It was in some sort a renewal of the scene at Les Avants, the inevitable renewal of an offer he felt bound to make, and she felt bound to resist. She let her knitting fall, and placed her hand in his. The baby on the rug was alternately caressing and scourging a woolly bar-lamb, which was the fetish of her childish worship. Her broken, incessant baby-talk, and the ringing kisses with which she atoned to the bar-lamb for each successive outrage, made a running accompaniment to the moved undertones of the parents. "'Don't ask me, Robert, don't ask me. Do you want me to come and sit thinking of last year's Easter Eve?' "'Heaven knows I was miserable enough last Easter Eve,' he said slowly. "'And now?' she exclaimed, looking at him with a sudden agitation of every feature, "'Now you are not miserable. You are quite confident and sure. You are going to devote your life to attacking the few remnants of faith that still remain in the world?' Never in her married life had she spoken to him with this accent of bitterness and hostility. He started, and withdrew his hand, and there was a silence. "'I held once a wife in my arms,' he said presently, with a voice hardly audible, Who said to me that she would never persecute her husband? But what is persecution if it is not the determination not to understand? She buried her face in her hands. I could not understand, she said sombrely. And rather than try, he insisted, you will go on believing that I am a man without faith, seeking only to destroy? I know you think you have faith, she answered but how can it seem faith to me? He that will not confess me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven? Your unbelief seems to me more dangerous than these horrible things which shock you, for you can make it attractive, you can make it loved, as you once made the faith of Christ loved. He was silent. She raised her face presently whereon were the traces of some of those quiet, difficult tears which were characteristic of her, and went softly out of the room. He stood a while leaning against the mantelpiece, deaf to little Mary's clamour, and to her occasional clutches at his knees, as she tried to raise herself on her tiny, tottering feet. A sense as though some fresh disaster was upon him. His heart was sinking, sinking within him and yet none knew better than he that there was nothing fresh. It was merely that the scene had recalled to him anew some of those unpalatable truths which the optimist is always much too ready to forget. Heredity, the moulding force of circumstance, the iron-hold of the past upon the present. A man like Ellesmere realises the working of these things in other men's lives with a singular subtlety and clearness, and is for ever overlooking them, running his head against them in his own. He turned, and laid his arms on the chimney-piece, burying his head on them. Suddenly he felt a touch on his knee, and, looking down, saw Mary peering up, her masses of dark hair streaming back from the straining little face, the grave open-mouth and alarmed eyes. "'Fart it, it is! she said imperatively. He lifted her up, and covered the little brown cheeks with kisses. But the touch of the child only woke in him a fresh dread. The like of something he had often divined of late in Catherine. Was she actually afraid, now, that he might feel himself bound in future to take her child spiritually from her? The suspicion of such a fear in her woke in him a fresh anguish. It seemed a measure of the distance they had travelled from that old perfect unity. "'She thinks I could even become in time her tyrant and torturer,' he said to himself with measureless pain. "'And who knows, who can answer for himself, Oh, the puzzle of living!" When she came back into the room, pale and quiet, Catherine said nothing, and Robert went to his letters. But after a while she opened his study door. "'Robert, will you tell me what your stories are to be next week, and let me put out the pictures?' It was the first time she made any such offer. He sprang up with a flash in his grey eyes, and brought her a slip of paper with a list. She took it without looking at him. But he caught her in his arms, and for a moment in that embrace the soreness of both hearts passed away. But if Catherine would not go, Elsmere was not left on this critical occasion without auditors from his own immediate circle. On the evening of Good Friday, Flaxman had found his way to Bedford Square, and as Catherine was out, was shown into Ellesmere's study. I have come, he announced, to try and persuade you and Mrs. Ellesmere to go down with me to Greenlaws to-morrow. My Easter party has come to grief, and it would be a real charity on your part to come and resuscitate it. Do? You look abominably fagged, and as if some country would do you good. But I thought, began Robert, taken aback, you thought, repeated Flaxman coolly, "'that your two sisters-in-law were going down there with Lady Helen "'to meet some musical folk. "'Well, they're not coming. "'Miss Leyburne thinks your mother-in-law not very well to-day "'and doesn't like to come. "'And your younger sister prefers also to stay in town. "'Ellen is much disappointed. So am I. "'But—' "'And he shrugged his shoulders. "'Robert found it difficult to make a suitable remark. "'His sisters-in-law were certainly inscrutable young women.' This Easter party at Greenlaw's, Mr. Flaxman's country house, had been planned, he knew, for weeks. And certainly nothing could be very wrong with Mrs. Laban, or Catherine would have been warned. "'I'm afraid your plans must be greatly put out,' he said, with some embarrassment. "'Of course they are,' replied Flaxman, with a dry smile. He stood opposite Ellesmere, his hands in his pockets. "When you have a confidence?' the bright eyes seemed to say. "'I'm quite ready.' Claim it if you like.' But Elsmere had no intention of claiming it. The position of all Rose's kindred, indeed, at the present moment, was not easy. None of them had the least knowledge of Rose's mind. Had she forgotten Langham? Had she lost her heart afresh to Flaxman? No one knew. Flaxman's absorption in her was clear enough, but his love-making, if it was such, was not of an ordinary kind, and did not always explain itself and moreover his wealth and social position were elements in the situation calculated to make people like the ellesmeres particularly diffident and discreet impossible for them much as they liked him to make any of the advances no robert wanted no confidences he was not prepared to take the responsibility of them so letting rose alone he took up his visitor's invitation to themselves and explained the engagement for easter eve which tied them to london "'Phew!' said Hugh Flaxman. "'But that would be a shindy worth seeing. I must come!' "'Nonsense!' said Robert, smiling. "'Go down to Greenlaw's and go to church. "'That would be much more in your line.' "'As for church,' said Flaxman, meditatively, "'if I put off my party altogether and stay in town, "'there will be this further advantage that, "'after hearing you on Saturday night, "'I can, with a blameless impartiality, "'spend the following day in St. Andrew's Well Street. "'Yes,' I telegraphed to Helen. She knows my ways. And I come down to protect you against an atheistical mob tomorrow night. Robert tried to dissuade him. He did not want Flaxman. Flaxman's epicureanism, the easy tolerance with which, now that the effervescence of his youth had subsided, the man harboured and dadded with a dozen contradictory beliefs, were at a time peculiarly antipathetic to Ellesmere. They were so now just as heart and soul were nerved to an effort which could not be made at all without the nobler sort of self-confidence. The flaxman was determined. "'No,' he said, "'this one day we'll give to heresy. Don't look so forbidding. In the first place you won't see me. In the next, if you did, you would feel me as wax in your hands. I'm like the man in Sophocles, always the possession of the last speaker. One day I'm all for the church.' certain number of chances in the hundred there still are, you will admit that she's in the right of it. And if so, why should I cut myself off from a whole host of beautiful things not to be got out of her? But the next day, vive Ellesmere and the Revolution. If only Ellesmere could persuade me intellectually. But I never yet came across a religious novelty that seemed to me to have a leg of logic to stand on.' He laid his hand on Robert's shoulder, his eyes twinkling with a sudden energy. Robert made no answer. He stood erect, frowning a little, his hands thrust far into the pockets of his light grey coat. He was in no mood to disclose himself to Flaxman. The inner vision was fixed with extraordinary intensity on quite another sort of antagonist, with whom the mind was continuously grappling. "'Ah, well, till to-morrow,' said Flaxman, with a smile, shook hands, and went. Outside he hailed a cab and drove off to Lady Shardot's. He found his aunt and Mr. Winsday in the drawing-room alone, one on either side of the fire. Lady Charlotte was reading the latest political biography with an apparent profundity of attention. Mr. Winsday was lounging and caressing the cat. But both his aunt's absorption and Mr. Winsday's nonchalance seemed to Flaxman overdone. He suspected a domestic breeze. Lady Charlotte made him effusively welcome. He had come to propose that she should accompany him the following evening to hear Ellesmere lecture. "'I advise you to come,' he said. "'Ellesmere will deliver his soul, and the amount of soul he has to deliver in these dull days is astounding. A dowdy dress and a veil, of course. I will go down beforehand and see someone on the spot, in case there should be difficulties about getting in. Perhaps Miss Leyburn too, might like to hear her brother-in-law.' "'Really, Hugh?' cried Lady Charlotte impatiently. "'I think you might take your snubbing with dignity. Her refusal this morning to go to Greenlaw's was brusqueness itself. To my mind, that young person gives herself airs.' And the Duke of Semba's sister drew herself up with a rustle of all her ample frame. "'Yes, I was snubbed,' said Flaxman, unperturbed. "'That, however, is no reason why she shouldn't find it attractive to go to-morrow night.' "'and you will not let her see that just because you couldn't get hold of her "'you've given up your Easter party and left your sister in the lurch?' "'I never had excessive notions of dignity,' he replied composedly. "'You may make up any story, you please. "'The real fact is that I want to hear Ellesmere.' you better go, my dear,' said her husband sardonically. "'I cannot imagine anything more piquant than an atheistic slum on Easter Eve.' "'Nor can I,' she replied her combativeness rising at once much obliged to you i will borrow my housekeeper's dress and be ready to leave here at half-past seven nothing more was said of rose but flaxman knew that she would be asked and let it alone who oh, Alsmere's, my dear aunt when you happen to be the orthodox wife of a rising heretic your husband's opinions are not exactly the spectacular performance they are to you and me i think it most unlikely Oh, she persecutes him, does she? She wouldn't be a woman if she didn't, observed Mr. Winstay, sort of sotto voce. The small dark man was lost in a great armchair, his delicate painter's hands playing with the fur of a huge Persian cat. Lady Charlotte threw him an eagle glance, and he subsided for the moment. Flaxman, however, was perfectly right. There had been a breeze. It had just been announced to the master of the house by his spouse that certain socialist celebrities, who might any day be expected to make acquaintance with the police, were coming to dine at his table to finger his spoons and mix their diatribes with his champagne on the following Tuesday. Avert rebellion had never served him yet, and he knew perfectly well that when it came to the point he should smile more or less affably upon these gentry as he had smiled upon others of the same sort before but it had not yet come to the point, and his intermediate state was explosive in the extreme. Mr. Flaxman dexterously continued the subject of the Ellesmere's. Dropping his bantering tone, he delivered of himself a very delicate critical analysis of Catherine Ellesmere's temperament and position, as in the course of several months his intimacy with her husband had revealed them to him. He did it well, with acuteness and philosophical relish. The situation presented itself to him as an extremely refined and yet tragic phase of the religious difficulty, and it gave him intellectual pleasure to draw it out in words. Lady Charlotte sat listening, enjoying her nephew's crisp phrases, but also gradually gaining a perception of the human reality behind this wordplay of Hugh's. That good heart of hers was touched. The large imperious face began to frown. "'Dear me!' she said with a little sigh. "'Don't go on, Hugh. I suppose it's because we all of us believe so little that the poor thing's point of view seems to one so unreal.' "'All the same, however,' she added, regaining her usual role of magisterial common sense, "'a woman, in my opinion, ought to go with her husband in religious matters.' "'Provided, of course, she sets him at naught in all others,' put in Mr. Winstay, rising and daintily depositing the cat. Many men, however, my dear, might be willing to compromise it differently. Granted a certain modicum of worldly conformity, they would not be at all indisposed to a conscience clause." He lounged out of the room, while Lady Charlotte shrugged her shoulders with a look at her nephew in which there was an irrepressible twinkle. mr Flaxman neither heard nor saw. Life would have ceased to be worth having long ago, had he ever taken sides in the smallest degree in this menage. Flaxman walked home again, not particularly satisfied with himself and his manoeuvres. Very likely it was quite unwise of him to have devised another meeting between himself and Rose Laban so soon. Certainly she had snubbed him, there could be no doubt of that. Nor was he in much perplexity as to the reason. He had been forgetting himself forgetting his role and the whole lie of the situation, and if a man would be an idiot he must suffer for it. He had distinctly been put back a move. The facts were very simple. It was now nearly three months since Langham's disappearance. During that time Rose Laban had been, to Flaxman's mind, enchantingly dependent on him. He played his part so well that the beautiful, high-spirited child had suited herself so naively to his acting. Evidently she had said to herself that his age, his former marriage, his relation to Lady Helen, his constant kindness to her and her sister, made it natural that she should trust him, make him her friend, and allow him an intimacy she allowed to no other male friend. And when once the situation had been so defined in her mind, how the girl's true self had come out, what delightful moments that intimacy had contained for him! He remembered how, on one occasion, he had been reading some Browning to her and Helen in Helen's crowded, belittered drawing-room, which seemed all piano and photographs and lilies of the valley. He never could exactly trace the connection between the passage he had been reading and what happened. Probably it was merely Browning's poignant, passionate note that had affected her. In spite of all her proud, bright reserve, both he and Helen often felt through these weeks that just below this surface there was a heart which quivered at the least touch. He finished the lines and laid down the book. Lady Helen heard her three-year-old boy crying upstairs, and ran up to see what was the matter. He and Rose were left alone in the scented far-lit room, and a jet of flame suddenly showed him the girl's face turned away, convulsed with a momentary struggle for self-control. She raised her hand an instant to her eyes not dreaming evidently that she could be seen in the dimness, and her gloves dropped from her lap. He moved forward, stooped on one knee, and as she held out her hand for the gloves, he kissed the hand very gently, detaining it afterwards as a brother might. There was not a thought of himself in his mind. Simply he could not bear that so bright a creature should ever be sorry. It seemed to him intolerable against the nature of things. If he could have procured for her at that moment a coerced and transformed Langham, a Langham fitted to make her happy, he could almost have done it. And, short of such radical consolation, the very least he could do was to go on his knee to her and comfort her in tender, brotherly fashion. She did not say anything. She let her hand stay a moment, and then she got up, put on her veil, left a quiet message for Lady Helen, and departed her whole manner to him was a full of a shy, shrinking sweetness. And when Rose was shy and shrinking, she was adorable. Well, and now he had never again gone nearly so far as to kiss her hand, and yet, because of an indiscreet moment, everything was changed between them. She had turned resentful standoff, nay, as nearly rude as a girl under the restraints of modern manners can manage to be almost laughed as he recalled Helen's report of her interview with Rose that morning, in which she had tried to persuade a young person outrageously on her dignity to keep an engagement she had herself spontaneously made. "'I'm very sorry, Lady Helen,' Rose had said, her slim figure drawn up so stiffly that the small Lady Helen felt herself totally effaced beside her. "'But I'd rather not leave London this week. I think I will stay with Mamma and Agnes.' Nothing Lady Helen could say moved her or modified her formula of refusal. "'What have you been doing, Hugh?' his sister asked him, half dismayed, half provoked. Flaxman shrugged his shoulders and vowed he had been doing nothing. But in truth he knew very well that the day before he had overstepped the line. There had been a little scene between them, a quick passage of speech, a rash look and gesture on his part, which had been quite unpremeditated, and which had nevertheless transformed their relations. Rose had flushed up, had said a few incoherent words, which he had understood to be words of reproach, had left Lady Helens as quickly as possible, and next morning his Greenlaw's party had fallen through. "'Check, certainly,' said Flaxman to himself ruefully, as he pondered these circumstances. "'Not mate, I hope, if one can but find out how not to be a fool in future.' And over his solitary fire he meditated far into the night. next day at half-past seven in the evening he entered lady charlotte's drawing-room gayer brisker more alert than ever rose started visibly at the sight of him and shot a quick glance at the unblushing lady charlotte i thought you were at green she could not help saying to him as she coldly offered him her hand why had lady charlotte never told her he was to escort them her irritation rose anew what can one do he said lightly if Ellesmere will fix such a performance for Easter Eve, my party was at its last gasp, too. It only wanted a telegram to Helen to give it his coup de grâce." Rose flushed up, but he turned on his heel at once, and began to banter his aunt on the housekeeper's bonnet and veil in which she had a little too obviously disguised herself. And certainly in the drives to the East End Rose had no reason to complain or for importunity on his part. Most of the way he was deep in talk with Lady Charlotte as to a certain loan exhibition in the East End, to which he and a good many of his friends were sending pictures. Rose, leaning back silent in her corner, was presently seized with the little shock of surprise that there should be so many interests and relations in his life of which she knew nothing. He was talking now as the man of possessions and influence. She saw a glimpse of him as he was in his public aspect and the kindness, the disinterestedness, the quiet sense, and the humour of his talk insensibly affected her as she sat listening. The mental image of him which had been dominant in her mind altered a little. Nay, she grew a little hot over it. She asked herself scornfully whether she were not as ready as any bread-and-butter miss of her acquaintance to imagine every man she knew in love with her. Very likely he had meant what he said quite differently, and she, oh humiliation, have flown into a passion with him for no reasonable cause. Supposing he had meant two days ago that if they were to go on being friends she must let him be her lover too, it would, of course, have been unpardonable. How could she let anyone talk to her of love yet? Especially Mr. Flaxman, who guessed as she was quite sure what had happened to her. He must despise her to have imagined it. His outbursts had filled her with the oddest most petulant resentment. Were all men self-seeking? Did all men think women shallow and fickle? Could a man and a woman never be honestly and simply friends? If he had made love to her, he could not possibly—and there was the sting of it—feel towards her maiden dignity that romantic respect which she herself cherished towards it. "'For well, it was incredible that any delicate-minded girl should go through such a crisis as she had gone through, and then fall calmly into another lover's arms a few weeks later, as though nothing had happened. "'How we all attitude to ourselves! "'The whole of life often seems one long, dramatic performance, in which one half of us is for ever posing to the other half. "'But had he really made love to her? "'Had he meant what she had assumed him to mean?' The girl lost herself in a torment of memory and conjecture, and meanwhile Mr. Flaxman sat opposite, talking away, and looking certainly as little lovesick as any man can well look. As the lamps flashed into the carriage, her attention was often caught by his profile and finely balanced head, by the hand lying on his knee, or the little gestures full of life and freedom with which he met some raid of Lady Charlotte's on his opinions. Or opened a corresponding one on hers. There was certainly power in the man, a bright human sort of power, which inevitably attracted her. And that he was good too she had special grounds for knowing. But what an aristocrat he was after all! What an, what an over-prosperous exclusive set he belonged to! She lashed herself into anger as the other two chatted and sparred with all these names of wealthy cousins and relations with their parks and their pedigrees and their pictures, the aunt and nephew were debating how they could have best bleed the family in its various branches of the art treasures belonging to it for the benefit of the East Enders. Therefore the names were inevitable. But Rose curled her delicate lip over them. And was it the best breeding, she wondered, to leave a third person so ostentatiously outside the conversation?' "'Miss Laban, why are you coughing?' said Lady Charlotte suddenly. "'There is a great draught, said Rose, shivering a little. "'So there is,' cried Lady Charlotte. "'Why, we have got both the windows open. "'Hugh, draw up Miss Laban's.' He moved over to her and drew it up. "'I thought you'd like a tornado,' he said to her, smiling. "'Will you have a shawl? There is one behind me.' "'No, thank you,' she replied rather stiffly, and he was silent. Retaining his place opposite to her, however. "'Have you reached Mr. Ellesmere's part of the world yet?' asked Lady Charlotte, looking out. "'Yes, we are not far off. The river is to our right. We shall pass St. Wilfrid soon.' The coachman turned into a street where an open-air market was going on. The roadway and pavements were swarming. The carriage could barely pick its way through the masses of human beings flaming gas-jets threw it all into strong, satanic light and shade. At the corner of a dingy alley Rose could see a fight going on. The begrimed, ragged children, regardless of the April rain, swooped backwards and forwards under the very hoofs of the horses, or flattened their noses against the windows whenever the horses were forced into a walk. The young girl figure in grey, with the grey-feathered hat, seemed especially to excite their notice— The glare of the street brought out the lines of the face, the gold of the hair. The Arabs outside made loutishly flattering remarks once or twice, and Rose, colouring, drew back as far as she could into the carriage. Mr. Flaxman seemed not to hear. His aunt, with that obtrusive thirst for information which is so fashionable now among all women of position, was cross-questioning him as to the trades and population of the district, and he was dryly responding. In reality, his mind was full of a whirl of feeling, of a wild longing to break down a futile barrier and trample on a baffling resistance. To take that beautiful, tameless creature in strong, coercing arms, scold her, crush her, love her. But why does she make happiness so difficult? What right has she to hold devotion so cheap? He too grows angry. She was not in love with that spectral creature the inner self declares with energy i will vow she never was but she's like all the rest a slave to the merest forms and trappings of sentiment because he ought to have loved her and didn't because she fancied she loved him and didn't my love is to be an offence to her monstrous unjust suddenly they sped past st wilfrid's resplendent with lights the jewelled windows of the choir rising above the squalid walls and roofs into the rainy darkness as the mystical chapel of the Graal, with its torches-glimmering fair, flashed out of the mountain storm and solitude on to Galahad's seeking eyes. Rose bent forward involuntarily. "'What angel's singing?' she said, dropping the window again to listen to the retreating sounds, her artist's eye kindling. "'Did you hear it? It was the last chorus in the St. Matthew Passion music. I did not distinguish it,' he said. "'But their music is famous.' His tone was distant. There was no friendliness in it. It would have been pleasant to her if he would have taken up her little remark and let bygones be bygones. But he showed no readiness to do so. The subject dropped, and presently he moved back to his former seat and Lady Charlotte, and he resumed their talk. Rose could not but see that his manner towards her was much changed. She herself had compelled it but all the same she saw him leave her with a capricious little pang of regret, and afterwards the drive seemed to her more tedious and the dismal streets more dismal than before. She tried to forget her companions altogether. What would Robert have to say? She was unhappy, restless. In her trouble, lately it had often pleased her to go quite alone to strange churches, where for a moment the burden of the self had seemed enlightened but the old things were not always congenial to her, and there were modern ferments at work in her. No one of her family, unless it were Agnes, suspected what was going on. But in truth the rich, crude nature had been touched at last, as Roberts had been long ago in Mr. Gray's lecture-room, by the piercing under-voices of things, the moral message of the world. "'What will he have to say?' she asked herself again, feverishly, and as she looked across to Mr. Flaxman— she felt a childish wish to be friends again with him, with everybody. Life was too difficult as it was, without quarrels and misunderstandings, to make it worse. End of book six, chapter thirty nine.